0: Welcome to episode 16 of Stomp the Stigma, the podcast aimed to fight the stigma surrounding mental health through education, awareness, experiences, stories, resources, and the vulnerable truth. Joining me to Stomp the Stigma today is owner and director of Assured Psychology, Daniel McMillan. He is a registered psychologist right here in Alberta, but most importantly, he is a father of two girls and a normal human being. He's here to talk about how mental health and therapy can influence our relationships, whether that's with friends, with partners, or with ourselves.
1: Hi,
2: how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you?
2: Good, thanks.
0: Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to fit me into your schedule and sit down and chat with me. I really appreciate that. No problem, thank you. So you're the owner of Assured Psychology, and you are a registered psychologist. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, how did you get into this field in the first place?
2: Uh, you know, I was anticipating, you might ask me that, and I was trying to think of which answer to give.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> is there more I than feel, one?
2: <laughs> I feel like they're layered. Um, okay. So... Um, I uh, professionally uh, like if you look in my high school yearbook, it says I'm gonna be a psychologist. Like I wrote that.
1: Oh um, wow! So
2: yeah, I always knew. I always found people really fascinating.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, like even in my undergrad, I used to always study in the U of A hospital because I just like watching people. I didn't do a lot of studying, but I liked watching people. Um, so I mean, I always just it was that or be a park board, and I always you know, I you wanted to work with people or work outside. Mm-hmm. Um. And so it just sort of went that path. But I was trying to think of, like, another level to – another layer to that question. And there wasn't an obvious answer to me, but I do find um, it an interesting coincidence that uh, – so I grew up in a, a big family, um, and a loving family, but definitely a family where we didn't talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I talk to people about things we're living.
1: Yeah.
2: And I talk to them about all the things that I – at one point tried to avoid, which is mostly mostly emotion. So I find that really interesting. So I think there might be some implicit um, drivers mm-hmm. at play in that choice as well. It's sort of the shorter version, I think. The longer version is, um, I guess, I don't want to give both versions. Uh, I uh, Some of my earliest memories were watching, were going with my father who was a small town physician on his rounds and talking to his patients. Mm-hmm. and. Just interacting in the healthcare system and and seeing what what to me really seemed like really down to earth really quality care and how to how to treat people and and that I think has been also driving what I do for most of my life.
0: Okay, so you have wanted to do this your whole life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow.
2: When I came home, my undergrad I didn't go into grad school right away, so I actually worked. Doing counseling, but I was an addiction counselor for quite a long time. I worked in the schools a little bit, but then I worked in addiction counseling with youth, and then eventually went back to grad school. And then um, after grad school, worked as a
0: psychologist. Is there a certain kind of branch or um, I guess section of psychology that you like the most?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I work in clinical or counseling psychology. Yeah, um, but. And that's my favorite by far. Uh, But I don't even like to refer to it as clinical psychology because over time, like the cool thing for me is that over time um, people started really making sense. And what really started making sense is the humanity of us all, Um, Mm -hmm. meaning, um, and we'll probably get into this later, but we're all just suffering human beings trying to do our best with what we have accessible to us and you know if if I lift a massive load on my shoulders something will eventually give whether it's my back or my knee or my ankle and genetically whether it's what gives is whether it's my back or my knee or my ankle Mm -hmm. but if I have to lift that load for a long time by myself something's gonna give Uh, and so I the field I practice is counseling psychology, but um, I almost wish it, it's a humanistic stance of counseling psychology is, I guess, why okay. I'm saying this, um, that over time has, has become more and more important
0: to me. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I know. I know that all therapists are different, and a large part of it is finding a therapist who you connect with and you feel comfortable with. So, um, I guess my question is, what is your approach to therapy and um, helping somebody in need?
2: Yeah, so that also, almost all these questions have a short answer and a long answer, (laughs) and I'll probably attempt a short answer and then move into a long answer, I won't stop myself. (laughs) Um, But I don't wanna uh, uh, deviate too far. Um, So, uh, the short answer is I, I practice a few approaches, my, I would say my toolkit in which I put all the other approaches is emotionally focused therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I borrow a few other approaches like somatic experiencing, like CBT, um, Rogerian. But um, EFT or emotionally focused therapy would be my primary approach. The longer answer is kind of a continuation of what I was just saying, which if I can see, if I can truly see and understand and feel a person's pain, and under symptoms, which is what we call mental health right now, is symptoms, is always pain. Mm-hmm. Whether it's sort of an invisible, chronic, hard to put your finger on, lack of something, or a, a more immediacy, acute thing like a trauma, um, or just a, a piling up of different things. So for me, how I approach this, I try to, as a human being, see another human being suffering um, and understand it from ways that i see are fundamental and then help them move away from their defenses that they did at one point to survive or to it was their best choice at that time to numb, to shut down to be anxious to panic to people please to whatever um to get big to get small at one point that was the best thing that their young mind could have created um and helped them over time move away from that into the more organic parts of themselves that are innately healing, like their core emotion, like healthy relationships, like their body, um, like their own wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I don't, um, when I interview staff, when I'm hiring people, I ask them the same question, but I ask them not to give me any sort of clinical jargon or labels. So I guess right now what I'm trying to do is hold myself to the same standard.
0: Oh, I like that. That's a great idea. So um, psychological work and counseling in general often dives into kind of the darker parts of people's lives. How do you kind of separate your work from your home life? Or is that possible for you to leave that at work when you go home?
2: Yeah, again, I think there's two answers to this. Um, the, the first, you know, the, I've been asked that on, on probably every job interview <laughs> yeah. attended or um, and so the first is it's very important to have ways to do so, to not carry that into your home. And um, so I've developed through years different ways. Colleagues are a really good way, a safe space to debrief uh, nature. I, I almost always try to live where I can walk to work. This year is the exception to that, or the last couple of years. But, um, you know, activity, music, uh, but I think the longer or, or the other answer is that I don't think you can to a full degree mm-hmm. Like I don't think you can bear witness to a person's pain yeah. and truly be a passenger like truly be upfront and care And that it just leave you because you yeah. went to the gym Like I think there's a residual effect that you have to be really careful of mm-hmm. um, and to make sure you have ways to deal with that So that over time you don't get hardened and cold or over-intellectual or hierarchical in your work. Mm -hmm.
0: So do you think it would be more difficult for somebody who has a mental illness to um, pursue a career like that?
2: No, the stats, um, I don't remember the exact number, but they're roughly 50-50. 50% 50 Mm -hmm. of people pursue for their own personal experience. Mm-hmm. I'm at 50% just because they have sort of an interest. But I don't like the binary nature of that or even of the idea of you have a mentalist or not. Yeah. We all yeah. are suffering. We all struggle at some point. Some people qualify for certain labels, mm-hmm. which can be useful. Yeah. Um, I think what you do with, with your pain and your struggles—it has a lot to do with what type of therapist you are, right? And I, and to what type of human being you are, honestly. Um,
1: yeah.
2: And and so I don't think it disqualifies anyone. In fact, it could be a great therapist if if you use that pain to give you wisdom. If it doesn't inform you, if if it's still raw and you haven't done your own work, whether it's a mentalness or not, you, you're gonna bump into things in therapy that you probably like that that may get in the way of your work with clients. Mm-hmm so yeah. I think the question is really more have you done your work and again when I interview people I
1: always ask them that
0: oh I like that that's a good yeah. point you did bring up um not everyone has a mental illness or there's different I guess levels of um being labeled in that way um but everyone has mental health struggles of their own mm-hmm. and a lot of the time we overlook the fact that our therapists are not invincible and they're humans too um so just how do you take care of your own mental health?
2: Yeah, you know, it, for I think when I started and was younger, I felt like I had to um, be perfect. Yeah. and one of my um, heroes in the field once sort of said, "If you like, if you're if you're Rogerian, which means if you're empathetic." If you're present, if you're caring, if you don't judge people, they'll forgive you your mistakes. In fact, they'll like you for them. Mm-hmm. And it was this huge weight at that time. It was this huge weight off my shoulders. It was like, ah, oh, good, because I have no idea how to yeah. not be flawed. Yeah. <laughs> it really sucks. Um, but it's true. I think a lot of people think that because you're a therapist, you don't like you're some sitting on top of a mountaintop, enlightened, like mm-hmm. figured all of life out. And that is not the case in my experience. Yeah. So, again, I think like the staple answers are I do a lot of outdoor activities. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my kids. I I, I do a lot of sports. I, interestingly, combat sports help me balance. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. it kind of gives me the yin and the yang, Mm -hmm. I think. One of them being like the more gentle, uh, sort of softer sides of me and the other being sort of this harder side. And I think it helps provide balance in my life. So I would say mostly through physical activity and the people I love.
0: I actually do uh, Muay Thai and boxing, mm-hmm. and people tell me all the time that I'm this very like calm soul, I guess, and that they could never picture me like being this aggressive person. But I think that for me, anyways, it definitely balances out. Like when I go to class and go and hit the bags, and I have this whole, I guess, different side of me, and then I'm very calm and. And uh, yeah. quiet usually otherwise.
2: I think there's a lot to that actually. I, yeah. I mean the I'm gonna I am i do not know a lot about this so don't misquote it, but the idea of yin, yin yang is from ancient Chinese medicine, which is the idea that a person was ill because they're out of balance in either their masculine or feminine side and mm-hmm. every human being had both. So um, I think it's an important idea that we need to balance our different sides so that we can lean into each fully. The more I know my own power the more gentle I can be mm-hmm. The more gentle and sensitive I can be the more I can lean into my own power
0: yeah oh, I agree with that totally yeah
2: and I actually think that there's a cultural thing here where men and women are sort of um, pressured to only show one half of that yeah uh, and then it creates a an imbalance even in instant insecurity in that half of it mm-hmm. so so Trying to prove it versus like authentically be it.
0: Right. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. I do. I do want to focus on kind of the couples counseling couples. side yes. of of your practice for this episode. So I want to get into a little bit of that um, side of things. In my opinion, there is a stigma around going to therapy um, for a relationship usually you hear about people going for major issues like infidelity or something like that. But what are, I guess, other reasons that people would come to therapy?
1: Um, yeah. It always,
2: I think as I've been doing so long, it always, it sort of half surprises me when a couple comes in or one person, the couple is like, I didn't think we were this bad to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And to, to me, I, I just hear that. as like, it's like saying, I, I didn't think I was this sick to eat an apple. Or I didn't think I, I had cancer, so why am I at the physician? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just because it's my world um, that I live in. But yeah, um, yeah there's such a, it's so weird that there's a stigma because all relationships struggle because all human beings struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, some support would be a useful idea. <laughs> but yet there's this idea that if you go to a couples therapy, you were either on the brink of divorce, someone had an affair, or you, um, someone's about to tell you you're going to get divorced. A lot of usually men walk in saying, like, is she going to drop some news on me? Like, um, it's not the case. I would say the majority of people that come to couples therapy, while well, there's a good chunk that are on the brink of those things. The majority have just found that the, what they're doing isn't working for them in the times it needs to work for them. Mm-hmm. So the reasons people come to couples therapy are pretty simple in my mind. It's that there's some form of disconnection repeatedly in the times when they need connection. And it doesn't mean every day. It doesn't mean on the break of divorce. But in the times, I'm going to back up a little bit. But human beings are hardwired to be a pack animal and to lean on each other. It's it's why it's the main determinant of our health and our happiness is our connection to other people. This idea that we're independent is a false, sort of Western idea. I mean, Harvard just showed that the best predictor of how long you live in this life, your mortality, isn't how many apples you eat or how much exercise you get or your genetics. It isn't how much you smoke, believe it or not, or everything that we know not to do. I just took vitamins before this. It's not that. It's your childhood and then significant romantic relationships. Because when you take the wolf out of the pack, its nervous system goes haywire, if the wolf lives like that, it doesn't do so well. Mm-hmm. So when human beings feel disconnected in our moments when we need our partner, our moments of joy, or moments of hurt, or moments of loneliness, if we feel like that and we can't reach them and be responded to or we can't let that in, our relationship struggles in some way. Sometimes that looks like conflict. Sometimes it looks like not saying anything and just two ships in the night growing apart. Um, and that's really the... The thing that drives people on the couple's therapy, affairs, divorce, you know, all these things are sort of the snowball rolling down the hill pretty far at that point. Mm-hmm. So sort of symptoms of disconnection.
0: So how does a couple know when they should try therapy or when they should just end the relationship?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. And a lot of people have differing opinions about this. Mm-hmm. Um... I'm a big advocate that you should try. (laughs) Uh, um, If there's anything left in you that wants to turn to that person and wants that person to turn to you. And I don't mean like out of defensive hurt, you're like, no, I don't want to need them. But if that part of you is truly dead, you're completely apathetic to this person. Empirically, that's a hard place to come back from. But everything outside of that, it's worth trying. And even that can be worth exploring. Are you just shutting down and you're numb? or you genuinely switched off for this person, truly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a big advocate that people. Give it a kick, like a kick at the can. That said, there's some disqualifiers. If there's ongoing partner violence, intimate partner violence, right. if there's abuse, that's not a time that therapy is useful um, because you can't ask a person to be vulnerable and open up to someone that's abusive to them. I want to be careful with the word abuse because I think it's misused a lot of the time.
1: People mm-hmm.
2: throw it around. Um, but true intimate partner violence isn't just situational, you know, something bad mm-hmm. happened once, but ongoing, and the person's unsafe sexually, physically, financially, um, even emotionally to some degree. Um, then it's not a time for a couple's therapy. It's a, it's a time to make sure you're safe and, and to create
1: a plan of how to leave the relationship safely.
0: Mm-hmm. safely. Do you ever see couples that they come and sit down in front of you and you it's, it's clear to you that they shouldn't be together? Does that ever happen for you?
2: If that happens, then I should not be seeing them as a couple therapist. Okay. Um, so uh, if I'm forming an opinion about that, I have to be very careful of that. It means I'm not actually yeah. seeing what's bonding them, connecting them. Right. My, it means unless, again, there's – you know, and unless those things I said, unless there's some form of unsafety, true unsafety, the lack of safety, and or a person's genuinely, genuinely done, which isn't that they shouldn't be together, means that that person's, it's called a burnt out pursuer, um, most of the time. Um, but other than that, if that's my opinion, I need to consult, I need to think about referring them, because my job, and this is, there's the reason I started um, KyrieCouples.com, the couples part to be such a big part of assured psychology is just because at that time i couldn't find a good couple therapist, and it is so important so crucial and there's so much bad uh, you know miss and bad practice and like i think it's 80 percent people that say that you will see couples have no formal training in it um and even of them me- like the modes that exist the, the modes of practice methods of practice um there's really only One, maybe two that are empirically higher than 50%, like the rest are bad, terrible odds. So my point being a lot of, if you think that someone's sitting there, like a judge trying to decide who was right or wrong and then get you to see it, Mm -hmm. that's not actually useful couples therapy in my my mind. Couples therapy is looking at how people disconnect the dance they're doing, that when they're trying to protect themselves, you know, they do this and that does this That person, that person does this. You know, so classically, one person feels the disconnect, they get big, they criticize or get angry, the other person feels a lack of safety, they shut down and pull inward and get quiet, mm. that creates distance, that makes the other person protest and get more critical or get more intense, that makes the other person feel less safe and like they can't do it enough right and they pull back further. Those are the patterns that people need to see and then learn how to reach From a different place, and truly, in that dance, it's fifty percent. You get fifty percent of all responsibility and blame. There's no more, no less. Anything outside of that, and someone's judging you. It's not. I don't believe that to be useful. Mm -hmm.
0: So, how how can therapy um, help a relationship that involves uh, mental illness, whether that's in one partner or in both?
2: Yeah, such a big question. and so I, I would say both for relationships and for family work, mm-hmm. when I've done both. Um, I've never, or I haven't often used, used the opportunity when the other person comes in as a chance to sort of teach that other person how to support this person, mm-hmm. um, believe it or not. And, I, and there's others that would definitely do that and disagree with what I'm about to say. I see it as an opportunity to um, impact the relationship so that that person can voice to that other person what they need, that person can hear it, that person can voice back, Overwhelmed they are or they are when that person the other person's resource. Now i making it confusing. Um, so when a couple comes in and one person is struggling with whatever anxiety, depression or both, uh, I, I take a fairly non-pathologizing approach, so does EFT but I sort of work it into their cycle. So like the example I just gave you, um, maybe instead of critical, which, which isn't diagnostic, maybe that person actually gets intense rage or, or, or threatening behaviors um, or alternates. They threaten behaviors and then pull away and leave. Um, maybe the other person, stuffs their feelings inwards so often so much and can't be seen as all alone that they start to feel very down and very helpless and depressed. Yeah. So for me helping to understand the mental illness and the, and the label of that into their dynamic because it's sort of a, it's something they bring into the relationship, but it's also something the relationship either helps or hinders um, and, and it plays a role in their dynamic if this makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a simple answer. Yes, self-care is very important for both partners. Right. Yes, setting boundaries is really important. Yes, uh, you know, having outside support, seeing professionals when you need, all that stuff is helpful. But, but I, again, I'm very hesitant to the idea of one person is the broken one, and one person is the fixie, and let's give suggestions to the fixee to help the broken one. Right. Um, I think that understanding how this dynamic plays into the relationship um, and helping them learn to change that is sort of fundamental to to truly a, a holistic and wraparound approach for mm-hmm. someone struggling with mental illness. Uh, and, and empirically, this has been shown uh, like a healthy relationship greatly impacts people's mental well-being. Yeah.
1: Um, well being. Yeah, I like that a lot.
2: So I don't think I'm answering your question, but I, but I I'm explaining why I'm not answering your
0: question. No, I like I like that perspective of. Um, getting partners to kind of work together and understand each other rather than having one person come in and like try and fix the other person like yeah
2: I'm you know I call it the fixie fixer (laughs) and I've fallen into that dynamic before I've Mm -hmm. been the fixer and and brought on a fixie and really are they more ill than I am ill they they, or is it just not our stuff showing
1: up differently yeah
2: um picture couples like a room full of broken plates, you know, we kind of find ones that that we fit just correspondingly different. We make a bigger plate. We also poke each other very, very much. <laughs> um, so I, I think we all kind of come into this with our own stuff. We find people yeah. at the time we meet them at least of equal and just differing stuff, mm-hmm. quote-unquote stuff. That's a very clinical term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I could – tell a story um this story was told to me by sue johnson who created eft um and i love it and i tell it a lot but to me it captures your, the answer to your question and i don't know the accuracy of any of this so i'm telling her story giving her credit but also her blame if it's completely false <laughs> historically but apparently the Celtic people at one point she's english um but she's told the story that the Celts at one point had this philosophical view of life that life was being in a dark tunnel warring dragons many of which were immortal meaning you, you would eventually lose to them you would die and they believed at that time that the purpose of life was the battle and what she said and this was like 15 or 10 years ago um, what she said was that life, they actually got kind of close but what we know from about 40 plus years of attachment science and, and many other sciences is that life is like being in a dark tunnel, warring in mortal dragons. Many things you can't defeat, your own death being obvious, illness, the death and illness of everyone around you, mm-hmm. but also world events, COVID, for example, your past in some ways, partner stuff, in-law. like There's so many things, housing prices, whatever the stress is, babies. And it's being able to reach out in that darkness and find the hand of the person you love. When you can do so, it changes the entire experience of that battle. You will still eventually lose. You will still succumb. But to know you're not alone changes your experience of that battle. And so when I sort of think of what couples can do to support each other, to me, that is the fundamental thing. Can I reach to you in my core vulnerability and my core emotions? There's only six of them. It's not complicated. Can I truly show you my sadness? My shame, my fear, my joy, my core anger. Can you hold it and be there with me? And can I do that for you? And it turns out when people can do that, they do okay. Knowing we're not alone is so crucial. And we under we kinda of downplay that in our culture at least. I know that sounds simplistic, but in my experience with people, that's fundamental. Do you want to hear my not-so-clever version of that story? It's kind of crude. It's mine. So hers. That's, this shows the difference between her and I. She's much smarter. Um, I picture, like, you're driving. I live in Cochrane, so I picture, like, someone's coming up to Cochrane for an appointment or come from Cochrane, Calgary, or whatever, and they take separate cars, and one car rolls into the ditch. And another, you know, you pull over, and you run out, and you're you are you okay? And your partner's sitting there, and their arm's broke, but they're and they're trapped, but they're okay. They're not in like threatening situation. They say, yes, I'm okay. My arm's broke, but I'm okay. And you try to get them out, and you can't. There's no way to get them out. You say, okay, well, I've called them. ambulance. mean, I've called the fire department. i called number one. They're coming. It's going to be about 14 minutes. They say, okay, good. Okay. And you say, okay, I'll see you at home then, honey. I'll see you in a little bit. And you get in your car and drive away. <laughs> like, that's preposterous, right? Yeah. But you can't change it. You can't fix it. Yeah. But we we just know that being there matters. Yeah, that's my best eloquent version. I like it. <laughs> you know, I've told that dragon story probably, I don't even know, 500 times, and it makes me tear up every time.
1: Oh.
2: I think because it there's something innate that it mm-hmm. touches inside, yeah. and, and it seems to have an impact on people. It touches inside of us all.
0: Yeah. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah. So uh, everyone has their bad days, obviously. Um, how do you know – If someone or even yourself is struggling with more than just your average case of the blues. And I guess for a partner, if they if they are aware of someone's struggles, or unaware, I guess, or suspect one, like what are some of the warning signs um, of something that is more than just your average case of the blues?
1: First, I think the average case
2: of blues is still okay to get support on yeah uh, you know the earlier you can stop a snowball rolling down the mountain the less extreme it gets the less intervention it takes so I, I think we live in a culture of self dismissal meaning most of us out of our, really our fear of our own vulnerability but have learned to dismiss our own emotions in some way or another mm-hmm. yeah you know, and then they show up in a secondary form and that creates all sorts of problems but um So I just say that because I don't, I don't want people to think, am I bad enough? If you're not doing so great and that's a felt sense, you know, you deserve support in some kind. And if you continue to not feel like you're doing so great, then you deserve the next level of support. I mean, warning signals or red flags are obviously the, the most, some of the more obvious ones are suicidality. If you start to, believe it or not, thoughts of suicide are fairly normal over a lifespan. And actually, some degree of that can actually help a person um, cope. Mm-hmm. To know that there's an exit door in a burning building helps people stay in a burning building longer. But, you know, thoughts of suicide starting to really develop a plan, think about acting on it. Like, yeah. like when the lethality of your suicide urges starts coming up, that's definitely a time. But I can I mean, I don't want to list all the DSM, but there's you know, any sort of form. If you struggle to really get out of bed, struggle to find joy in life, if you're having panic attacks, if you're, you know, not feeling like, you know, you're living your head the entire life, you're drinking to cope, smoking to cope. Like, I, I, it's a giant list, but I think something in all of us has a sense of when we're not living from our, like, a peaceful place. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a point when that starts to feel overwhelming. Our emotions exist for a reason. And one of the reasons we have these feelings are to tell us when something's not right and to bring attention to it. If my knee really, really hurts and I ignore it, it's not a great idea because it means something's getting un- not looked at and it could get worse. So, so I, I know I'm, I feel like I'm deviating a lot of your questions, but um, I think that that felt sense inside people like they're unhappy. Mm-hmm. Life's not what they want it to be. And that could look like, cause they want to die tomorrow or that could just look like they just don't feel fulfilled in their
0: life,
2: Mm. um, then they should reach out. We all should.
0: Yeah. But that's that's not always as easy um, as it sounds.
2: No. No. That's the heartbreaking part. Yeah.
0: Okay. You did touch on um, communicating with your partner about your mental health issues or struggles. Um, And I I really like your approach um, to kind of appreciating each other and communicating um is there any advice that you could give to either party on how to communicate with the other person um in a more effective way
1: yeah there is um
2: but i want to warn you that it may not work initially um Mm -hmm. you know the patterns we get into the systems we get into in our relationships are fairly stubborn um and what often happens is or almost always, one person or both people have tried something different and it didn't work, so then they went back to their old way of defending
1: themselves. Right.
2: Um, so I say that, but I don't want someone to hear this be like, hey, I tried to be vulnerable, didn't work, going back to not talking for a week or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if it doesn't work persistently, obviously that's what couples therapy is for. You can try and read a book or go to a retreat, sometimes that's helpful. Um, but usually in these couples therapy, uh, but yes, the advice is, um, it's going to sound simple, but if as best you can talk from the core vulnerable place, not from the defense, which I mean, that, what I mean, is we probably mm-hmm. all kind of kind of know the things we do that aren't helpful, but yet we keep doing them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So. If if I'm in a conflict with someone I care about, I can do a couple things. I can numb and get quiet. I can turn into the know-it-all psychologist. Um, I can intellectualize Um, to win an argument. I can try to quote research, which is really useful about my own life. (laughs) Um, So if I notice I'm doing any of those things, what I need to do is go below and find what I'm really what am I really feeling feeling sad that i'm not seen or important i feel afraid that I won't be heard um i feel like i don't matter that's a big one for me um and i need to vulnerably speak from that it's not a guarantee that a person can hear it right away Mm -hmm. but how our mirror neurons work is super cool um you know, if you on this video call saw my finger snap in half and break, you would go out and feel pain. You wouldn't need to do it to yourself to know that hurts.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, we actually pick up on the emotion, the core emotion we see in another person and feel it ourselves. So when someone can be vulnerable and say, hey, when you were late on our anniversary, that made me feel like it didn't matter to you. That made me feel like, you know, everything I do, I try so hard that it's not enough. And that really hurts me. And also, that's exactly how I felt for so much of my childhood. And that's devastating to me. And when a person can share yeah. that, the chances of the other person yeah. reacting and, and meeting them are much higher because it pulls their mirror neurons. They feel sad. They may block that. They, that's why I said a couple therapy might be needed. They may not be able to hold it but definitely the chances are better than if I say you're late again. You're always late. You obviously don't care. Your work matters more. Um, And I don't even know why I'm with you. I mean, you can guarantee, you can guess how that person's going to respond to that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Either argumentative or defensive or appeasing, but it won't, it won't make either of us feel better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the tip is hard to do. It's simple, but hard to do all those defenses. You learn when you're little, they're not, not useful anymore. You just need to be able to have control over them, intention over them, and learn how to be vulnerable and speak to that. And it won't guarantee you won't be hurt. It just increases your chance of getting what you need, right. and the other person not having to do what they. Because when you do your defense, it pokes them in their deep wound, and they do their fence and they pokes you in their ear deep wound.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, so I don't like to give things like I statements or use often startups. There's a whole big list. And if you want to sell a lot of books, you can give a few suggestions on them, love languages. Uh, to me, what's really important, and I, know, I feel like I'm going on, but this is crucial. Uh, it's important to understand that we only have three attachment strategies. That's it. And, and they're obvious in babies, but they're for life. The baby can call and be responded to. If no one does that, our entire mm-hmm. species doesn't exist. Right? right. Like, our, we're the most helpless mammal born. Horses walk within mm-hmm. an hour, even baby girls can hold their mama's fur and be carried around. We can do zero. Mm-hmm. If we don't call and that matters to another person and they feel our call actually, they register on that side and it causes them distress enough to act, to lower that distress, we don't exist. Who would get up at three in the morning, night after night after night with a baby otherwise? This is our number one attachment strategy is, I need you, I reach for you, and my core need, and you mean it. Now, only about 28 30% of the population keeps that through their life because most of us get socialized that we can't do that. The homes we grow up in aren't, don't talk about things, or it's not safe to talk about things, or, or it's too chaotic, it's all anger, or whatever. So then and there's two other strategies. If you ignore that baby, it actually goes berserk. like it, it gets that i don't know if you've ever heard it's that shrill baby cry
1: mm-hmm. that everyone
2: on the plane like hates like <laughs> yeah. um it like i always felt like it literally felt like it was cutting me into the bone like <laughs> like like it's impossible to ignore mm-hmm. um, I try. um so they do what's called protest and if that gets ignored still they actually shut down look like they're asleep with their eyes open they totally go in and right in oh wow yeah so these are only two three strategies so you can see this in grownups. Can I tell you, like I just said, hey, this really hurt, or I'm really lonely. Can I show that to you Has um, my reach? If not, which most of the population unlearns, then uh, you know I've got two strategies left and people tend to adopt one primary strategy. I get big, I protest. You know, I, I get really intense or I get critical or I just come forward or, uh, this is when people are called quote unquote needy and I put that in quotations. Um you know, or I over talk or I'm going to plan every detail of life or I get really anxious okay. or the energy is a forward moving energy or I go inward. I shut down. I numb. I, I, get to, I you know, distract. I, I Maybe I have to use substances or maybe I just do it myself, but I just mm-hmm. go inward and shut down. We all have all three strategies inside of us, but people adopt a primary one um, and sometimes people adopt a combination of them.
0: So is there a difference between... I guess, healthy and unhealthy communication.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh,
0: yes. I mean, I guess you kind of gave an example of that already. but
2: Yeah, I think, I, and again, it's like there, there could be a giant list of ways to unhealthy communicate, mm-hmm. but ways in which you're protecting yourself that aren't actually bringing you any closer to the relationship.
1: Right.
2: Um, you know, and I don't want to, I mean, there's obvious ones like attack or anger, rage, criticism, but there's also the other half of the coin, numb, quiet, shut down, walk away. Like, so sure, anything that detracts from your relationship is not a healthy communication way. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, at least for myself, what I got lost in for a long time before I learned all this was, which was worse? Well, my way was just getting quiet or going in my head, so that's not worse. At least I'm not the person yelling in safe way. That person's the bad guy, not me. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, they're just different.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there a difference between, I guess, the way you should communicate with a partner who has mental health issues versus communicating with someone who doesn't? Or with is that all the same?
2: No, it's the same. I mean, I think in a partnership, we all have a responsibility to be as best we can. Sensitive to the other person's stuff. We're not responsible for that person's stuff and we're not mind readers And Mm -hmm. that's a big pitfall that people fall into is expecting that person to just know you have to actually tell someone what you need but We do have a responsibility to be sensitive to their stuff and so You know whatever that looks like it it could look like someone's struggling with depression it could just look like someone's I don't know in the middle of their residency to become a physician and they're totally burnt out like or, or whatever like so so, no I don't I don't think it's any different just the degree in some moments is different
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so a part of uh supporting someone who is struggling with mental health issues whether that's in a relationship or not Mm -hmm. um is having those difficult and honest conversations um do you have any tips for people on how to approach those difficult conversations in like a more respectful way
2: yeah, I think um, the thing we i all attempt to do is to speak about you and not mm-hmm. I. Yeah. And so just talking to your own experience, you know, Alana, when you did this last week, it's still been bothering me. I've been feeling blah, 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 blah. Like, um, and what I really need is this. Um, okay. So I, I think, again, just trying to show up from your vulnerable self rather than your defended outer crust. Cause that can, that can really further the fixie fixer. You did this, you're really not doing well, you're really broken,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you need to go get help. This is all on you. I'm, once you do that, I'll, I'll. it'll be okay. But I'm not telling you how terrified I am, how scary it was to watch you do that, or right. how, you know, how overwhelmed I am, I become the hospital visit you every day for two weeks. I need a break, but I'm scared to ask one because you're the one struggling or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tricky balance. I can appreciate it's a tricky yeah, balance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: yeah, I, I keep saying the same thing over and over because it ends up coming down to very difficult but very simple things, which is how we're innately built to connect and not being like, and when we do that, we don't feel alone
1: mm-hmm.
2: when we can successfully do that. Um, and then we can kind of solve I don't solve problems for couples. They often come in, I I want, what should we do with the kids? What should we do with sex, money, blah, blah, What's Just give us like the thing to do, you know, what happens in the situation. That's honestly not my job. And every time I've fallen in that trap, it it works briefly and then doesn't work and then they feel disillusioned and give up or or it's just one more thing doesn't work for them. What my job is, is to align couples together so that they can learn how to reach and be responded to and let that in both ways both ways. Um, I say that because often with one identified patient or one identified mentally ill person, it's usually only one way. And then they figure out how to balance breaks and time away and all that stuff. Who's watching the kids or doing what chores. Or Yeah. And that's a huge relief for me because I do not want to I, I play judge and tell you what to do. People mm-hmm. always want coping skills, and here's the five things, but it doesn't work that way. If it did, you could just read it off Google and be done, and it wouldn't be any issue. Yeah. And the, the book you read 10 years ago, you would have changed everything. It's a process. It's not content, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's our humanity. How do we interact with the other human being we're being close to? How do we get our needs met? And when we can't, then what do we do with that? And my job is to help people find a way to have those bonding conversations, and then mm-hmm. they resolve it. And it's really cool when they resolve it. Like at the end of a couple's therapy, they talk a lot. I don't talk that much, and they figure out cool stuff. And, and I would never think of it. It would never, it would never ever cross my mind to create a spreadsheet for this or whatever. Oh, no, you yes. But it works for them. Yeah. So, so I'm really glad I didn't suggest doing
0: it a
1: different way because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have worked for you.
0: That's a really good point. I think there's a stigma or I guess a, a misconception about couples therapy or relationship therapy that you are there to be this like middle man that's going to take sides and tell them which person Who's is wrong. right or which person is wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's not how it is at all.
2: Yeah, it should. It's it's not that way with some approaches. Some some approaches, some type of may to practice that way, um, mm-hmm. but in my mind, and speaking for mostly folks therapy, that's not useful um, because that's part of their dynamic. One mm-hmm. person needs to be right. One person has to, you know, be the tail between the legs, wrong for a couple of days to keep peace. Like, yeah, it, it, I can't remember the saying exactly, but basically. You know, if, if you want to be right in a relationship, you, you're not going to be happy. Like, like yeah. Um, yeah. it's really not about that. But I will say about your point, a lot of people come terrified of that.
1: Mm-hmm. In,
2: in my own experience, seeing it, it often seems to be men come in really scared for that um, or scared that they won't have the tools asked of them. Um, but yeah, uh, often someone comes in really scared that they're going to be told they're the bad guy, they're the fault of the relationship mm-hmm. struggling which is really shaming.
0: I guess stemming off of that point, if you or somebody is interested in starting therapy or trying therapy and their partner is not not interested at all, how, how does somebody approach that situation? Yeah, that's hard.
2: It's really hard. Um, and it happens a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make like a drink. It's really hard, I, I think, yeah. trying your best to have honest conversation with why, why you really want to go to therapy, um, how worried you are for the relationship or, or what's driving you. And it's, and I don't advocate for this except for in some more extreme cases, sometimes a boundary has to be set, you know, like when you are saying, like, should people try therapy for divorce? Like I said, most times, yeah. Um, sometimes a boundary has to be set that, you know, it, it's this, or I, like I'm like, I'm heading out the door. Like, will you try? I don't suggest that people use that as a tool immediately. Like, mm-hmm. um, And I think also on the flip side, to be for that person, trying to be open to hearing their hesitations because um, there's usually some secret ones like I'll be judged or I'll be the bad guy or I won't know what to say you know, or, or uh, I'm a really private person and it's going to be weird to let someone in or I don't want to talk about sex or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, But that's a hard scenario. It's, re- it's really hard. In my in my experience, but it's it totally a biased view because I only see people that come. I don't see people that don't come. But in my experience, a lot of people come when one person doesn't gently suggest it. It's when one person has to insist.
0: It's kind of um, an ultimatum. Well, hopefully not, not. Not quite that far. But,
2: but on occasion. Couples that show in an ultimatum are are often at a place where it takes more work, Right. Um, where couples when one person just said, I just, you have, I really need you to hear me, I really need to do this, and another says, okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes it's all made. Ideally, it's that they, and and maybe this is changing as the world changes, someone says, you know, this could really, like, we're good, but we could be better. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's figure that out. So I love those couples, those couples are so easy. <laughs> I love all couples like they're all really great I shouldn't say that (laughs) the longer a pattern develops it's like a cancer the more it
1: takes over the worse it is the harder it is to remove
0: yeah yeah so obviously with the pandemic there's been a lot of stress on relationships Um, we've heard divorce rates going up and all of these things either making or breaking relationships in your opinion do you think that the pandemic has created destructive issues in relationships or has it just brought kind of hidden issues to the surface that already existed?
2: I think it's done a few things. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's an obvious stressor that's added mm-hmm. onto a relationship. So, you know, um, everything has a, a, a tipping point, like the amount of pressure a bridge can hold, there's a limit on that,
1: right. you know? Mm-hmm. And
2: if, an extra 100 pounds shouldn't make a difference, or extra 1,000 pounds, but how close to that edge or that limit it is will influence that. Right. So I think for a lot, it's an obvious pressure that has exacerbated a lot of people's issues. Also a lot of the ways that people naturally coped. And again, we're a packed right. animal, yeah. and online isn't the same. It's, it's, it's good to not give up interaction, but it's not the same shared space in person. I think some of the ways we naturally cope mean that none, that we're not able to support our self relationship like we used to.
1: Right.
2: Also, for a lot of couples, uh, there's not much distraction anymore. <laughs> you know, if you are away three weeks out of four every month, um, you know, you have a certain type of relationship. But it doesn't mean a bad relationship,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but being home all four weeks yeah. will definitely change that relationship. Yeah. Um, but for some couples that kept busy or kept away from each other or fill their lives to be just sitting in the same space day after day. So I, you know, I don't think it's created anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's added stress, which on all, all the, everyone, which is, you know, people have either came together over and faced a dragon or, or slowly separated. Um, and then in the, and since all couples have existing issues, it can definitely like the fault lines, that's where the cracks will happen um so it's shown up uh, like couples I think are noticing those more now
1: mm-hmm. yeah so neat.
2: I think it's just fast forward timelines and dealing with issues to some degree Amazing. Yeah.
0: okay I have yes. one last question for you um that I like to ask most of my guests um is there a stigma or a misconception surrounding mental health that bothers you the most or that you hear most often that isn't true?
2: Oh man, I could talk about <laughs> uh, just this question broadly. I could just go off on it. Um, yeah. Yes, but it's different from most people's. Okay. So, um, with mental health and with addiction, the original model was what is called a moral model, which is um, it's because you're bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. so it's why we lock people up is they're bad you know so for a long hundreds of hundred years that was the model if you're weak or bad that's obviously ridiculous um so then we move to the uh, emphasis on the biological model which is helps defeat the shame of a bad mm-hmm. to it's biology it's it's my brain it's neurochemical however that's shown to be quite simplistic that's an influencing factor for sure but it's you know, our brains are social beings and they're also environmental beings. I mean, this conversation is happening neurologically, so it's more complicated than just that. But I think that offered for a lot of people, and I want to be very, very clear about this. A, there's legitimacy to, to that influence, um, including medication, and B, it offered people shame, the, the break or, or moving away from the shame of what's wrong with me. I'm, I'm broken, I'm wrong, like mm-hmm. everyone else. Which is, I think, really important for those people, and often they hold it like a lifeline. Problem is, that we can't stop there. We have to understand it more nuanced, and that's why at the beginning I talked about our humanity, because that's what I learned when I when I first started working with people. You know, being less secure, I, I, I wanted to follow the model our culture gives, which is, um, you go see the person, they tell you how to fix it, you fix it, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means you, as the fixer, needs to just be able to eliminate this thing, needs to tell them clearly what it is, and here's the steps. But our humanity is way more messy than that. Uh, you know, like our, our minds particularly, uh, and our ways of being. So at first I grasped onto really concrete ideas. And over time, when I could kind of move away from my own insecurity about not being the best person there was, or it can't be disappointed me or something, I started listening to my clients and I've probably had, I don't know 10,000 clients or something, but I started listening eventually, and they are the ones that taught me, in my mind what, what really matters, which is yes, our, I mean yes, our neurology and our genetics matter, but I mean epigenetics clearly shows that those things are triggered by our environment. You know we have a lot of genetics we don't express. Yeah. So what they started showing me is that their their mental health struggles are often symptoms of pain, either current pain or historic pain, and the way that they dealt with that pain, which now shows up as symptom, actually maybe helped them at that time, was a lesser of evils. And that the fundamental things that human beings need are, we need relationship, we need to feel cared about and safe and not alone. We need to be able to feel and express our core feelings, all six of them, there's only six, and one of them surprise, joy, shame, fear, sadness, core anger. We need to be able to feel that, express it and matter to another person. And when I sit with people, sometimes there's obvious injuries, which I call the car crash injuries, like you broke your femur in a car crash, you know, you had this obvious terrible trauma happened to you. A lot of times it's the lead pain of our lives which is the thing you ingested every day, you didn't know, you don't know why you got sick, um, but the lead pain actually determines the injury of the car crash. You know, the the best of how long a trauma, a sexual assault trauma, how, the impact it has and how long that lasts for a person is what was the response of the caring adults within the, in their life, mm-hmm. out of their touch. So I think the thing that I want people to understand is to be able to see past the simplistic understanding without adopting more shame instead adopt compassion for their humanity that we all suffer. That it wasn't your fault. that happened to you. No, you were doing the best you can, but to begin to honor your pain now in the little bits you can so you can begin to let go of it mm-hmm. rather than have to keep defending it in these ways that no longer serve you and keep replicating it into your life. And then yeah, you die your diagnostic, like you qualify for the pathology sometimes or you're just not, you know, your best self, not happy. That's the piece that I, and I don't know how good a job I did explaining it, but I think our, our field is far behind on this, not all, but I think so. I think psychology is so insecure that it's not medicine and came late to the party that is trying really hard to be seen as a science that we've forgotten the, the humanity part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's pretty critical. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would agree with what I just said. But um, that's the piece I want people to understand. is The Buddhist form of, of suffering is pain times resistance equals suffering. Without resistance, there's no suffering. There's pain. Yeah, you still get hurt. But it's only in our resistance to that suffering, that, or that pain that we create suffering. You know, I can stub my toe and it hurts. But if I stub my toe and then I bite your head off for it, I'm gonna feel terrible after. I'm gonna suffer. You're gonna feel terrible after. Um, yeah, my point is to begin to honor our pain of our humanity, and where and we all have been hurt. So rather than boxes of I am or I'm not this or I did or didn't have trauma or did, like, instead, one of my favorite quotes is, "No one gets through this life unscathed." In what ways did those invisible hurts, and they aren't always what was there; they're often what wasn't there. You know, who did you leon on? Who was there for you in your dark moments when you were sad, when you were scared?
0: No human being
2: is comfortable with all core emotions. That means no parent is. And as a parent, this makes me sad to say it's true. That means we won't always be there in response to our kids as they need us to be, which means, and if they can't talk to us about that, we can't repair it. They'll internalize it. They'll figure out their own meaning and it'll be about themselves. Mm-hmm. And they'll, And they'll find their own way to cope. So I just want people to see their humanity compassionately and weave that into their understanding of their symptoms, not either or, and know that there's no shame in that. We're all, we're all exactly the same. We all have the exact same amount of worth. We're all hurt, human beings, trying our best. Some people had a harder hand of it, and so their struggle.
0: Mm-hmm. See, this is why I love this question, because it is different every time.
1: Mm, it's a great yeah, question.
0: I like that answer a lot. Oh, good. Thank well, you. that is all the questions that I had for you. Um, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't?
2: I mean, I find interviews challenging because I want to hear your perspective yes. <laughs> on what I shared. I feel like I just rambled a bunch. So is there anything you want to share?
0: Um, I think, I mean, I've never really talked to – A relationship therapist or a couples therapist and I think in my mind and my I guess uh, perspective of society there's so much stigma and misconceptions around going to therapy while you're in a relationship Um, but I love your kind of take on it or your approach to therapy and I think all of your advice has been fantastic so thank you thank you
2: yeah yeah my advice is people should access support and therapy it doesn't mean you're yes not a bad thing
0: i absolutely agree yeah
2: yeah yeah so no i don't think i have anything more to add it's a nice day hope you enjoy it
0: oh thank you you too um if anybody uh wants to reach out or has more questions for you um can they do that or how do they do that
2: sure yeah um, good point I always forget that part. <laughs> uh, yeah just our website is assured psychology.com assured not insured uh, assured psychology.com we have a second website called calgarycouples.com um, they're all part of the same company um, it's me and my team uh, there's six of us we're in Calgary in the Kensington location and we have a Cochrane office um, and we all have very similar approaches, so yeah, people can just reach out, find us online, reach out there. Um, yeah, and I encourage people. And does that be a professional? Like we're helping to support you, but just mm-hmm. I think if people can hear permission to begin to be compassionate with self and be vulnerable and need the people in their lives, and it's okay to to reach for that for those people. That's that's what I would hope. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and giving your advice and your expertise. I think this has been such a good conversation and I think a lot of people will appreciate uh, the vulnerability and honesty. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Feel free to reach out at any time. You can contact me on Instagram and Facebook at StompTheStigmaYYC and you can email me at StompTheStigmaYYC at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And if you or someone you know would like to come on, I would love to have you share your story, speak your truth, and together we can Stomp the Stigma.